Thank you for joining us for another episode of CryptoCurrent. Just one quick reminder. CryptoCurrent is a cryptocurrency and blockchain education platform that's bridging the gap between the curious newcomers who are just discovering the space and the thought leaders who are shaping its future. All opinions expressed by Richard Carthon, the CryptoCurrent team, and their guests on this show are exclusively their own opinions. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Richard, the team, and their guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or to follow his financial advice. This show and any other cryptocurrency production is exclusively for informational purposes. What's going on, everybody? For Cryptocurrent, I'm Stephen Miller, and you're watching Cryptocurrent Live. I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Corneros. Chris, how are we doing today? Doing great, Steve. How are you doing? Another beautiful day in crypto land, my friend. We got a great show ahead today. We've got a lot of great content for you. We're going to be getting into a good old-fashioned buy-seller hodl, bringing you some of the biggest news that's going on in the crypto space right now. We're going to then jump into Two Bulls, One Coin, our favorite segment on this show, where we break down a project and figure out whether or not it is legit or a shitcoin. And then last but not least, we're going to wrap up with a good old-fashioned Aftershock segment to take you through the biggest story of this past week. So before we jump in, I want to go ahead and just tap onto one quick story that was not in our docket uh, to chat about this week. So Chris, I'm curious what you think of this news about XRP first. Because it just came out that XRP has just filed to deny the SEC's request to extend deadlines like regarding expert... Um, Inquest and discovery. What do you think about that? I mean, it, it feels like a bold move to me. I think it's bold, but I think it's, you know, it's, I'm not a lawyer, but to me, it just seems like another one of those legal games you play where the SEC is playing their own, right? Where obviously the fact they keep asking for extensions means they don't have anything because they don't gain anything from seeing this play out longer, right? This is just, it brings more eyes to it the longer this plays out. Um, it doesn't benefit Ripple either the longer it keeps playing out because they just keep getting delisted. So I think Ripple obviously wants to stop this extension because it doesn't help them. And it, they also know why would the SEC be asking for an extension if they had something in the first place. Yeah, it strikes me as like the SEC is trying to just continue to add on and on and on just because they know that their bag of like like um, legal fees that they can rack up is a lot more than what Ripple can afford. And they're just trying to basically like time them out. Um, so look, I think it's an interesting piece. But the other thing that came out today that I thought was even more interesting, and I don't know if you heard about this, this is like very, very, very new. Word is starting to come out that Facebook is rebranding next week. Yeah. And it's going to be completely different, you know, namesake. It may very well be more of a parent company, kind of like how Google did their rebrand and then had Alphabet above it. Exactly. Um, but this time, it's because Mark Zuckerberg is so all in on the metaverse concept. So to me, I'm pumped about that. I think that's going to be such a big move for crypto to be able to see that one of the biggest companies in the world is taking such a vested interest in Web3 and one of the things that's going to make it super unique. Um, but what do you ever think? What do you think about it? I think it'll definitely be interesting. Um, the least consequential of which will be the FANG acronym will probably no longer exist because the F will be gone. But, uh, and I wish I had this up in front of me earlier today, I, I first heard about this on Twitter because one of the big sports books released a betting line on like the top 100 most likely candidates for Facebook's next name. And some of them are ridiculous. Do you have any off the top of your head? Oh, off the top of my head, there was one that was like crypto book or like like just ridiculous things like that. Just finding different ways to combine like meta, metaverse, crypto, face, and book. And wow. I mean, things you never would have imagined. I'm, I wish I had it in front of me, but it was pretty good. Really original Facebook. Way to go. Well, look, 
if you're if this is your first time joining us here, just to give you a little bit of background here at Cryptocurrent, we're all about bridging the gap between those who know very little about cryptocurrency with thought leaders in the space. So in these Cryptocurrent live shows, we like to break a lot of this stuff down so that you, a beginner, or you know any degree of um, experience along the way, can start to understand things at a little bit more of a granular level so you can join us here in the Cryptoverse. So let's jump right in to what we've got on the docket today. I'm going to go ahead and bring up my screen. And as you may have seen on our thumbnail, we today are talking a lot about the ETF news from earlier on this week. So of course, you probably have seen that Bitcoin is at all-time high right now. It's even climbing well above. There's a lot of other really big news going on. So we wanted to, to go ahead and talk a lot more about Bitcoin today, but also get into some of these other stories. But the way that we get into that first is with our opening segment, Buy, Sell, or Hodl. Buy, buy sell, sell, or hodl, hodl. So Chris, for Buy, Sell, or Hodl this week, our first segment has to do with this Bitcoin mining surge. So tell me a little bit about what you got out of this. So A... Absolutely just bonkers the numbers that are being thrown around. Uh, but B, it makes a lot of sense. In case you're tuning in and you missed this news earlier in the week on Tuesday, Richard and Steve talked a lot about it. But the first uh, crypto or Bitcoin futures ETF launched on the, I believe it's just on Wall Street, right? New York Stock Exchange. Uh, yeah, it's NYC. Um, so essentially, what that allows investors. Uh, to do both. I think retail has access, uh, but this is mainly for large brokerages. Um, you know, if you have your money with a Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, etc. Basically, this lets you not invest in Bitcoin, but essentially invest in the level you think Bitcoin will reach. Because this is a little different than how like Venmo or Robinhood or Cash App was working where you'd buy crypto, but it you know, wasn't actually yours. You were essentially just in giving them $100, and then that $100 would grow in proportion to the percentage that Bitcoin is growing. What this is, is actually gambling with a very nice dress on. Because essentially what a futures ETF does is you are investing money into this fund. An ETF is a, you know, a fund. It's a group of... Traditionally speaking, it's a group of stocks that typically are in one larger industry, you're investing in because you think the industry as a whole will do well, but you don't know, you know how well specific companies in that industry will do. What this futures ETF does, it takes all these futures providers. So people that are saying, you know, buy in here, we think Bitcoin's going to go to here, you'll make X amount of money. And it's basically playing on rather than betting on one team to win the Super Bowl, you're betting on a pool of teams to win the Super Bowl. Super Bowl in this case being the long-term price of Bitcoin. As a result, the insane vo trading volume we've seen this week for Bitcoin has just skyrocketed. As Anthony Pompliano was reporting in that top tweet, it's a little smaller. He's saying that Bitcoin miners in the last 24 hours, so this was, uh, I think, yesterday, so starting on Tuesday, were paid $60 million in Bitcoin uh, for their mining services, for securing the Bitcoin network, making sure everything's operating, transactions are happening. Even more wild is that for every megawatt hour, US power companies are charging $50. But even with that insane surge price, miners are still getting 10 times return from their mining operations. So absolutely ridiculous numbers. Steve, I want to know what you think about this. To me, this is really wild because like, we like to get really hung up on like, I'm sorry, I'm not necessarily we. Society at large likes to get really hung up on how Bitcoin is not green in the slightest and how it's, you know, a big energy burner. And it's terrible for the environment. And this kind of proves to me that like, there still is so few people that really understand how Bitcoin miners consume energy because this is them taking excess energy from power generators and being able to 10x off that. It's not like they're just hooking up their, you know, AC outlet in their house and hooking up these miners and they're burning electricity that way. That's not how it works. Um, but I think the bigger message here to me is like if this is what's going to happen off of the futures ETF launch for Bitcoin, I'm really curious to see what happens when this Ethereum futures ETF comes because they're saying it's going to be on the heels. 
So there's a real legitimate chance that we could actually see an Ethereum futures ETF this year. And that could be really, really incredible um, for Ethereum at large. Um, because for right now, it's still proof of work. So there's a lot to unpack there. But to me, I, th- I think it's a really interesting story. And I really hope to hear more as we continue to hear more about like Bitcoin miners coming here to the US. Because as of right now, we are the number one um, miner in the world. So really, wow. that, that flipped over in the last like couple of weeks. So as of, as of very recently, the U.S. now can, controls the global um, hash rate. So wow. pretty interesting yeah. stuff there for sure. But are you buying on this or do you already have like enough reasons to buy Bitcoin? I mean, I have enough reasons to buy Bitcoin, but this is an even bigger reason. And the, I think the biggest point that I didn't touch on yet with this and why you should buy Bitcoin from this news, typically we do say, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news. This is Big, big news. It should drive the price up. But what makes this a unique opportunity to buy the news is that these aren't people actually trading Bitcoin. These are people trading around the idea of a future price of Bitcoin. So right now, the levels of Bitcoin aren't necessarily trading or changing from people acquiring Bitcoin. So I think this is a great time to get in because people right now are betting and speculating it's going to go much, much higher. And so this is a sign. This is that time where you should get in. I would totally agree. So if you're not getting it very like super clear there, if you've got Bitcoin in your portfolio, it's a definite hodl. But if you are still looking to get in, it's still not too late. We got a lot of road ahead of us. So I would call this a definite buy. Let's jump into this next story, which I personally think is one of the more interesting stories out of the like last couple of days. So right now, in the whole Web3 ecosystem war, you have all these big you know, players. We've talked about them over the course of the last few weeks. You've got Ethereum, Cardano, Cosmos, Terra Luna, um, Polkadot. There are so many that have emerged. And I think that as time goes on, not necessarily for this cycle, but definitely into the future, the biggest keyword that you're going to hear more and more of is interoperability. And right now, the two biggest players in that game when it comes to looking at all of those specific ecosystem plays are Cosmos and Polkadot and tangentially Kusama because it's the canary network for Polkadot. So across the last week, um, given that Polkadot is right now in the process of launching their first parachain auctions, they also put out a little bit of an interesting news story that the foundation in its treasury has currently about 19 million dot basically just put away for builders, educators, and overall improvements as voted on by Polkadot's governors. So there's a board of governors within Polkadot if like you if you, I think it's if you are operating a big enough node that you therefore would get to vote as an operator. Um, sorry, as a governor. And when proposals come up or projects come up to the board, you can vote on whether or not to allocate from that $19 million war chest or that 19 million dot war chest. Um, and it it's insane to me because Ethereum has funds allocated like and set aside for specific projects Cardano has it too, but I, I, I really don't think I've ever seen a war chest like this. The equivalent value of that right now, what, like $800 million? Oh, yeah. So, something absurd. I mean, this, like, this is VC money. This yeah, is... I mean, it's, it's so much more. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it's an insane amount. I'm trying um, to think of how to... Right? Yeah, okay. Quick tangent here. So there's a, there's this concept of humans, right? The way our minds work, you can't actually fathom large numbers, right? Like if you ever ask someone, you know, how many tennis balls do you think Serena Williams has hit? The answer is in the millions, probably, right? Over the entire course of her life. But even if you understand that, you couldn't conceptualize really what you know a million tennis balls looks like. In the same way, I don't know if anyone listening actually understands. How much money eight hundred million dollars really is? Like yeah. this is this is more I think than what like uh, like Google 
like this is more than the offers Google was getting when it was already the biggest search engine, but not that big of a company. Like this is big time money. And this yeah. is going to be something to watch. The thing that's bonkers about the whole like treasury at the size that they have it is like that number one, that's not all of the money that, that Polkadot and like the uh, Parity Foundation actually has to develop Polkadot. That's just the treasury, right? Like that's just the reserves. So to think that again, we're really like knocking on the door with this true number of like truly $1 billion in US currency. It's insane how many different projects they can actually go out and fund and offer funding to to continue to build out a more robust ecosystem on the parachains. But the other piece of this that's really compelling within the larger scope of things with interoperators is that Cosmos just launched their Sagan network. Essentially, with Polkadot, you have Kusama, the sister network that is basically used for testing things to make it you know, more... Um, more functional and efficient when they roll it out to Polkadot, you know, different updates and stuff. <clears throat> Cosmos does not have that right now. However, as opposed to like rolling out as a completely separate coin in and of itself, Cosmos launched Sagan basically as a side chain to Cosmos. So it's its own unique blockchain where they can allow all sorts of developers within the Cosmos ecosystem to go and just experiment. And tr like try and test new things in the hope of pushing the platform forward um, as time goes on and as new big updates roll out to the mainnet. So for me, I'm a really big believer in the entire interoperability narrative and bridging um, and making all of these blockchains more connected so you can move assets, you know, wherever you are into whatever ecosystem you prefer. So at large, Chris, I'm curious what you think. Is this a buy, sell, or a hodl for both Polkadot and Cosmos? I mean, definite buy for definite buy for both. Main reason being they're obviously supporting their developers. When you support your developers, they develop some pretty cool stuff for you that increases the value. But more specifically, and this relates really to Cosmos, and I saw kind of that Agile experimentation, and my first thought was, oh, I wonder if this is the same as the Agile framework. For those who don't know, it's basically a kind of a way of thinking around how you should develop software that focuses on rather than saying, all right, this year we're going to push out a new you know, piece of software. Instead, it's, okay, we're going to accomplish these goals in a three-week span, and then we're going to reconvene, kind of figure out our next steps. I love that for crypto because it's decentralized, but also just an aspect of decentralization. Things will develop incredibly quickly. Right, because you have all these different sources piling in. And so to me, this is seeing Cosmos is basically testing to see, okay, rather than the typical crypto update cycle, which you know actually takes longer than any other company in existence to update something, right? Even these massive blue chip Fortune 500s, it takes them months to update things, so you have to test everything. It takes crypto longer right now. But by Cosmos experimenting with an agile framework. And seeing, okay, could we feasibly get developers to kind of push out mini updates along the way? This is a very positive sign for me. It's a big buy sign for me because it shows that they are thinking in the future, if we have an issue, how can we best push out patch fixes the fastest? Yeah. And I think the other big takeaway here is that like this is not what I would consider part of that whole buy the rumor, sell the news. This is more so just like the project's pulling the curtain off of something that was totally out there. And like, if you dug deep enough, you'd find out. But they're, they're making a bigger deal about what is already going on behind the scenes. So this is not something like, it's a rumor and you can go buy it and then sell it when it's actually hitting press. This is a lot more of reinforcing the ideology behind certain investment theses. So I would take that for what it's worth. For me personally, long-term, I see both of these as really strong buys. But I think that's going to just about wrap it up for Buy, Seller, Hoddle this week. For those of you that, again, have just saw Buy, Seller, Hoddle for the very first time, do us a favor. Let us know what you think in the comments. Drop into the chat. Let us know what you think there. Have a conversation with our community. We would love for you to be a part of it. 
And if you really do want to be a part of it long term, make sure you subscribe, hit that bell note for notifications for whenever we go live or whenever we drop new content. We, Chris and I are always here every Friday at 7pm Eastern. However, um, we are also online on Tuesdays at 7pm Eastern. And I will be here with uh, Richard Carthon for that one. But you can also tune in on Mondays and Thursdays for brand new interviews with other industry experts that Richard hosts. So make sure you're subscribed, like, and make sure you click the bell for notifications. We would love it if you come back and join us in the future. So the next thing that we always do on this show is a beautiful segment that we call Two Bulls, One Coin. Two Bulls, One Coin. So this week on Two Bulls, One Coin, what we are typically doing on this segment is we break down one specific project or one segment of projects. Like in the past, you can you know go back into our historical log of live streams when we tore apart every single dog coin known to man. This week, we're taking apart a couple of these Bitcoin forks. So Bitcoin Cash, you may have heard of it, is a project led by a man named Roger Ver. And that project claims to be the real Bitcoin. So does every single other project that has Bitcoin in its name. They all claim to be the real Bitcoin. They are not the real Bitcoin. So to understand exactly why I'm making like a point of emphasis on this, I want to make sure that I'm sharing this first. There's a little bit you need to know about hard forks. Bitcoin since its inception has forked a lot. Okay? A lot of people like to get creative and think that, oh, I can go start my own cryptocurrency. So they decide, okay, the base layer and the foundational piece of a functional cryptocurrency as of right now is Bitcoin. So I'm going to model mine after that. So as you can see here, you have certain projects that have forked from the original chain of Bitcoin. Projects like Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, Dash. Um, I believe that is Bitcoin Silver, Zcash. Qtum, um, Bitcoin Diamond, Chia Network, Decred, Digibyte, don't know what the S1 is, and all the other ones are trash. So <laughs> let's move on. Underneath each of those, you see that there's also other forks. Those forks are secondary hard forks of the projects that already forked off of Bitcoin. So basically, you have this really messed up dichotomy happening here where basically people are just tailor-making their own cryptocurrency and praying to God that it catches on. One of the ones that did catch on was, in fact, Bitcoin Cash. It has a pretty solid base. People actually use it. And they use it for a similar reason that you would use Litecoin. It transacts faster, it settles faster, and it's cheaper to basically move Litecoin than it is to move Bitcoin. But this gives you a pretty clear idea as to how this hard fork works. So... In August of 2017, Bitcoin hard forked. Then you had Bitcoin going along the top. And that's the Bitcoin that we know today. That Bitcoin has stayed the same the whole way through. Bitcoin Cash, however, is what forked off in 2017. And then had a soft fork, again, to just do an update to the main chain in May of 2018. But then in November of 2018, it forked itself. So... Basically, Bitcoin Cash has now split into um, three, technically, because those both are different. They're unique hard forks. You have Bitcoin Cash independently. You have Bitcoin ABC, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. And then you also have Bitcoin SV, which is Bitcoin Satoshi Vision. In the list of Bitcoin derivatives that I've come across in my life, Chris, I have never heard of Bitcoin Satoshi Vision. And I don't give a shit. Yep, me neither. <laughs> Great, let's move on. So Chris, tell us a little bit about what you know about Bitcoin Cash because that's what we need to get a fundamental understanding of first here so that we can figure out whether this coin and these two coins are actually shit coins or if they're legit. Yeah, so essentially what happened is, I think this was back in 2016, 2017, um, I'm not sure when around then it happened, right? Like, I don't know if this happened during, before, after that, you know, that first big spike in Bitcoin we saw. But 
what happened was is there was a big disagreement in the Bitcoin community over whether they should continue on their current path or increase the block size. And what the block size, a larger block size does is it allows for more information in each block, aka more transactions, which would increase the transaction speed. Now, the downside to that, though, is Bitcoin at its current block size already takes an ungodly amount of energy to process and do anything. So by further increasing it, that would kind of create a bigger issue. And so that was the original debate. What happened was is there was a, a hard fork. Uh, Bitcoin Cash was created. Bitcoin still existed. And essentially what happened is it really became less about block size and more about people wanting to create money from nothing, which I don't know if you know anything about Bitcoin. The whole point of it is that there's kind of just one store of value, right? You can't just keep adding and adding and adding. Otherwise, there's no difference really between that fiat currency. Exactly. And so in theory, right, Bitcoin Cash could have functioned as the fiat to Bitcoin with the gold standard, right? But instead, it's just become this uh, crypto that is, I think, actually about one one hundredth of the value of Bitcoin. And if you map its growth over the same time period, Bitcoin Cash from inception doubled in value. Bitcoin has gone up uh, close to 10 times in value. So that's just a... I'll just leave that on the table as how the community feels about Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. Uh, yeah, Steve, why don't you transition us next? Because I have more thoughts, but I'll save them for the end. So... I guess like one of the things I want to go back to for just like one second is like part of this bigger narrative of like what it's turned into today is this really quite crap narrative that if you look across the tree of all of these different Bitcoin hard forks, you have Litecoin, which is dubbed um, the silver to Bitcoin's gold. You have Bitcoin Cash, which is the cash to Bitcoin's gold. You have Dash, which is the unused basically, you know, regional currency. Of, yeah, like I'm just going to call it the, the unused regional currency of Latin America and South America because it is legitimately used there. And then you have a bunch of privacy versions that are not particularly used. Um, but you get this kind of feeling that over time, it's just becoming more and more derivatives of this bigger store of value. Like you can think of it as a different commodity. And yeah, Dogecoin is part of that narrative because Dogecoin was a fork of Litecoin. However, we never refer to Dogecoin as anything more than a shitcoin. So let's move back to the bigger point here. There's one other piece of this puzzle, and that's what you saw in the second chart if you're joining us on YouTube. And that was Bitcoin ABC hard forking off of Bitcoin Cash. Now, the original idea behind this whole larger blocks discussion was that it could process more transactions per second than the original Bitcoin, right? In the case of Bitcoin Cash ABC, it got to the point where it was doing, you know, about 500 to 1,000 transactions a second. That was the entire like reason they wanted to hard fork it again and make it even faster. But since then, it never really caught on. However, in the last like year and a half to two years, they did this rebrand and they made it official this year where they transformed Bitcoin Cash ABC, which traded under BCHA, over to eCash, which trades now today as XEC. Sorry if that cut out XEC. What is totally different about eCash is it takes the entire model that Bitcoin Cash started out with and doesn't have it like as its own unique settlement layer. Like it's not its own chain, the way that Bitcoin stands sufficient on its own. Ecash was ported and basically, you know, built on top of Avalanche for three big reasons scalability, usability, and extensibility. So their entire premise with this new eCash solution that was originally based on Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash is that they want to get to the point where a cash solution or a cash equivalent can have 5 million transactions per second on the network, be very usable, broad scale, and like highly accessible, 
and then also extensible in that you can continue to add on top of it and create new, new use cases. So simple, instant, secure. And the big final note is eCash, for some unknown reason, has got the attention of Coinbase Ventures. So Coinbase Ventures has a degree of interest in eCash and they have started actually funding it. So at the end of the day here, like we're talking about a hard fork and a hard fork of hard fork. That's a lot of forks. But we want to get into the question of, okay, is Bitcoin Cash still like a viable solution? Is large block size actually a good idea? Should we be using this or not? Chris, what do you think? I mean, I'm, I want to touch a little on that transaction speed you were talking about, right? Like 500 to 1,000 transactions per second is really fast. That's what your average bank processes every second, right? So just to put that in perspective, like that is a very reasonable, by today's standards, that is what you should be at for a financial transaction at a bare minimum. Now, we've touched on this a little in the past in some of our other videos and live streams, etc. Their goal of 5 million transactions per second is, frankly, a bit ludicrous right now. The reason being that the fastest transaction speed program right now in the world that's commercially available is uh, Solana. And they process 50,000 transactions per second. So eCash's goal is to be a hundred times faster than Solana, which is already about one and a half times faster than the next best program, which is MasterCard. So to me, this is a great goal, right? If we could had anything that could process 5 million transactions per second, the entire world would jump on it. It would be worth more than gold. But I think right now, it's a bit far-fetched. And to me, that's really their only kind of value proposition. I don't see any way that this really adds value to crypto or the community as a whole or to individual investors when realistically there is no difference between this and one of the other 100 Bitcoin offshoots, forks, or altcoins meant to act as a store of value. Here's the one thing I'll say... I guess, in favor of this idea of scalability. Their entire premise is that if we were to get true global adoption, you would need 5 million transactions per second in order to feed that base. What becomes tricky there is something that I pointed out about the, um, <clears throat> the uh, Web3 trilemma. Like I think it was last week. In the case of Solana... One of the things that makes it unique is that massive scalability factor so that they can take on more transactions. However, the give and take there is that the network is less secure than other networks. In this case, you see what they say here, right? Like scalability to 5 million transactions per second, usability, extensibility. But then they like to go back on what they just said and start to throw in the idea of security. and. To me, it feels like that's an afterthought. I think they aren't really considering the fact that this solution, while it on the surface looks fantastic and something that the world should adopt, there is no shot in hell that this thing is actually as secure as Bitcoin, for example. You know, it's only as secure as the, um, the blockchain that it's ultimately deployed on top of, which is AVAX in this case. So if you're running this on top of AVAX, you have AVAX's security built in. But ultimately, if AVAX's security is ever compromised, you are probably going to be the first target because you have compromised on your own security in favor of scalability. That to me is a big issue. So let's get back to that bigger question. In today's world, is Bitcoin Cash viable based on this whole larger block size idea? No, I, I don't think so. And the main reason I don't think so is just that the goal they set out to accomplish years ago, right, when they had all the money, all the developing power, they had the tools to try and accomplish that. They certainly do not now compared to what they did. Uh, 
I'll recant a bit. Maybe Coinbase is throwing a lot at them, but I'm going to assume probably not that much. The reality is, is that what they set out to do already exists and is the market leader. To me, this is like if an Apple offshoot came along and said, you know, we could do you know, square phones, squarish phones, or we could do round. And the fact that they don't really like the square phones, they start their own company that's more round, but it's fundamentally trying to do the same thing. It's that, right? It's trying to compete with these coins, these market leaders that they just have no shot at competing with because they're just trying to get where these other companies are already. And obviously, these other companies are aiming beyond that. So I just don't see the feasibility of any of this being accomplished, but more so being accomplished before someone else accomplishes it and better, right? Like you were saying, lack of security is a big issue. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I happen to agree with you. Personally, I think that people like Roger Ver who want to claim that they're running the you know original Bitcoin in this whole discussion... They just need to be like off in their padded cell and just have their moment in the sun. But when you think of it, think of it from the basis on which it was actually created, all of these hard forks are trying to ultimately stay true to what Satoshi's vision was in the original Bitcoin white paper. They think that over time, Bitcoin has strayed too far from the path that Satoshi envisioned, and this is their way of getting it back on track. Ecash, in my opinion, is totally doing away with that. That's one of the things that makes it different from Bitcoin Cash. However, it was founded on the basis of Bitcoin Cash. So I guess the next thing that you need to like kind of dissect is like, okay, we've ruled out Bitcoin Cash. Bitcoin Cash is not particularly viable. It's not going to ever be Bitcoin. And it's likely not going to get adopted at the scale that would make it viable like cash. So when you look at eCash, is it next-gen money or is it the next dumpster fire? As I've so you know decided to put it in our, um, our deck today. And for that, I want to kind of call an audible because I wouldn't normally do this, but I want to pull um, this link up on screen for you guys. So. One of the things that I'm kind of encouraged by when I look at eCash is their roadmap. Very few of these cash solutions or the ones that want to try to be a settlement layer or some type of um, easier to move version of Bitcoin, they don't have a roadmap per se. They have goals. And goals are great. But I have not seen, and like, again, I've done a lot of research in the space, like, you know, understanding the equivalents and the projects out there that want to compete with a Bitcoin Cash and compete with a Litecoin, because they're not going to be able to compete with a, with a Bitcoin. I can tell you that for sure. They're like, you know, the nanos of the world that are trying to really do novel stuff when it comes to true currency deployment on blockchain. I'm kind of encouraged by eCash because their roadmap is really well documented and it makes a lot of sense. So I think that there is potentially something to this. And again, part of the logic there with the 5 million transactions um, per second was reaching scale for mankind. So basically, so that you can achieve 50 transactions per day for 10 billion humans would essentially, you know, be what they're growing towards and 5 million is on the path to that. Um, I think that you have some really interesting and compelling cases here for why you should consider this. Um, that being said, I think it's only going to be viable in the Avalanche ecosystem. I don't think this is something that's going to be broadly adopted. Um, so I think that it lands somewhere between next-gen money and next dumpster fire. I think it's it's very much so something that is indecision territory. Do you still have that site pulled up? Because there's I something I wanted to point out that you scrolled by that is interesting to me. Okay, let me... You can pull it back. It's right at the top. Um, 
let's see. Uh, all right, yes. Yeah. Scroll a little. Okay. There. So when they're saying adaptive block size, market-driven growth to one terabyte blocks. That, to me, is a massive red flag. Mainly being that they are either mentally and criminally insane or they have hardware or software or mathematicians that know something that apparently the rest of the world does not. Because quite frankly, if they knew how to process one terabyte blocks, they would make far more money building any large data application. Yep. Right? The current like block size for Bitcoin, I think, is like, what, four megabytes or something? Like the original goal of Bitcoin Cash was to get to an eight megabyte block. So just to kind of put this into perspective, you're looking at a 1 million divided by 1, 8 or divided by 8 increase in percent. So like 160,000% increase from like what the original goal with Bitcoin Cash was four years ago to now. To me, that is the red flag, right? Like that is just not feasible. And yeah, even if it is, it's not feasible before someone else does it in a better way. But again, like you start running into security issues there too, because at that, at that point, like you are solely focused on scalability. So oh, yeah. the other piece to this puzzle is like one of the biggest complaints, uh, like during this whole discussion of like larger block size was, okay, if we make larger blocks, isn't that technically going to be dominated by like the institutional side? You know, looking at the corporations and the like, the higher education once they get onto blockchain, and the answer is yes, right? Like the entire goal of keeping the block smaller is because it will be able to satisfy small individual users and keeping it sustainable over time That's while awesome. secure. Yeah, I mean in that this, was in this case, it can be this can be dominated one hundred and ten percent over and. It would be a disaster in certain situations. Now, on the extensibility side, because again, you're bringing this up, right? On the extensibility side, there are some things that are noted in here that lead me to believe that it would become more secure over time as they improve the protocol. Um, it's tricky, right? Like, I mean, this is, this is something that's highly technical. They want it to be secure. They're, they wouldn't put this out on the market if it wasn't. Um, but it's just a question of, can they deliver? And I think that it's probably a 50-50 shot at this stage of the game with eCash. Maybe a little less. Yeah, I would say 50-50 is like, if everything goes perfectly, it is a 50-50 yeah. shot for them. That's, that's exactly where I'm at. However, with Bitcoin Cash... It's a zero-sum game. Like, Bitcoin Cash is done. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's, there's no purpose. Like, it is certifiably, in my mind, a shitcoin. Like, oh, I'm yeah. never going to put money in it. I'm never going to put money in Litecoin ever again either. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's just no point. And that's... You know, is, and here's my thing, right? I've been pretty harsh on eCash, but at the end of the day... They can pull off what they're saying they want to, and it is secure, fast, and scalable. Then that thing is going to be a cash cow like you've never seen because oh, yeah. it will actually make every other form of processing any sort of financial transaction obsolete. The reason I'm being hard on it though is this is like about as ridiculous as going from, okay, the Wright brothers in the early 1900s flew a plane out of their garage to landing on the moon 60 years later. Like that's the kind of leap in the technology that we need to see for this to even have a dream of happening. And that's why I'm pessimistic about it, but also being harsh because I, I think it sounds great in theory. I just want to be realistic about expectations. And honestly, like I, I don't necessarily think we need to take it much further than that. 
Yeah. Um, if, if you disagree, feel free to. Um, and again, for those of you at home, please do us a favor. If you have a perspective on this, you want to speak in favor of eCash or Bitcoin Cash or any of these other hard forks that I have basically just deemed total crap, let us know in the comments. We want to have this conversation with you and we want to answer your questions. So if you have a question for us and you want to leave it in the comments, we'll make sure we answer it show to show. Um, so come back and join us on Tuesday and also Friday of next week so we can answer your questions live and follow up on this a little bit more. But before we call this one a week, we have our favorite segment on this show, and that is... The Aftershock. On the Aftershock, again, we take you through some of the biggest stories of the week. And of course, there is no story bigger this week than the state of Bitcoin ETFs. As Chris mentioned at the top of the show, Bitcoin futures is the word and term of the week. Um, earlier in the week, we got word that both ProShares and Van Eck have had Bitcoin strategy ETFs approved by the SEC and formally launched on NYSE. And what that means for crypto is going to be really interesting going forward. Again, Chris said like it's more about a matter of giving people the ability to bet on the long-term sentiment and the short-term sentiment of Bitcoin. Now... One of the most important pieces to this is like, yes, this is a monumental moment for, for Bitcoin and we don't want that to be lost. However, you have people like ARK Invest, Kathy Wood out there who are speaking out and saying like, look, it's big, but I'm not going to put my money in it. So the question is why? And the real answer is this. ARK Invest has its own horse in this game too just as both ProShares and Vanek have a different horse in the game as well. And that's for a spot Bitcoin ETF. A spot Bitcoin ETF is effectively an, an institution like ARK Invest in this case that has put together a large, large wallet or a vault of Bitcoin and is going to sell shares of that vault effectively. So... It is specifically allowing those shares to be sold with equivalents of what is in the vault. That's one-to-one. -one. That's an individual being able to basically buy Bitcoin and have it in their normal portfolio. So it's really interesting. However, it is not you custodying your own Bitcoin like we like to talk about here. That's the part that's dangerous. But an ETF that is spot-based is going to have a direct impact on the overall price and momentum and accessibility even of Bitcoin to the masses. So my question for you before we really dive in much further is what do you think? Like the, the futures ETF is a big deal, but like, do you think that we're going to see spot this year? Spot is a tricky one, right? Because, and I'm no legal expert here, but the way I think about it is Spot will have a lot harder time making it to any sort of you know traditional exchange just because for it to be, I think, within an ETF, so an exchange-traded fund is what ETF stands for, I think it technically has to be a security or a commodity. And to get on an exchange like that, I think the SEC would need to come out with a definitive, okay, this is what Bitcoin legally is. And that's really going to shake things up. And I don't think they've actually done that yet. And seeing as they've spent two and a half years now trying to sue Ripple to no avail, I don't see them slapping a label on Bitcoin anytime soon, which will hold it back. What well, do you see, think? But they, but they have actually named it. So they've, the SEC has formally already said that Ethereum and Bitcoin are not securities. The reason okay. that the SEC has to be involved in permitting an ETF is because an ETF is a security. So okay. essentially, as it stands right now, I believe it's that the, I think it's the CFTC, basically the, organ, the government organization that oversees commodities trading would be overseeing Bitcoin and Ethereum specifically because they are unique assets. Interesting. Okay. <clears throat> ETF, yeah. ETFs can be set up for commodity bags and and like set aside commodities like you've heard of um the, like the different gold ETFs and the mini oil ETFs exactly so 
the question is, will the SEC get off of its thumb and decide to actually approve this in the next couple of weeks? There's a lot of people out there that say that these ET, these spot ETF applications are actually still in play for this year. I'm not surprised by this. I'm not surprised by it in the slightest because the if there's one piece of actual validation that we have from regulators and especially the SEC is they've already determined that Bitcoin and Ethereum are not securities. There is very little that stands in the way of this anymore, guys. Like it's more a question in my mind of whether or not these individual institutions have accrued enough to satisfy market demand. That's the question. So right now, the most likely candidates that could theoretically get a spot ETF approved this year are Grayscale, Fidelity, and Vanek. Vanek has a really, really positive um, relationship with the SEC, historically speaking. They've had most ETFs that they've applied for approved. That's kind of a crazy feat on its own. But in my opinion, I think Grayscale and Fidelity probably have the biggest chance. Grayscale in particular, because they filed earlier in the week, I believe we talked about this on Tuesday, they filed to convert GBTC, which is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, into an ETF. Because that has already gotten approval from the SEC to be traded as a trust, and you can go buy shares in that, it should be pretty easy for them to approve conversion. Yeah. And it wouldn't be the first time they've done something like that. So there are two that have an outside chance of getting approved as well. And that's why I've kind of given this dark horse category um, some real estate on our board here today. Those are Kathy Woods, Ark Invest, which we mentioned earlier, and Mike Novogratz's Galaxy Digital. Galaxy Digital also has a really positive relationship with the SEC, but they're much smaller in terms of overall scale than Vanek. So I'm not sure that they're going to have enough Bitcoin in their reserves in terms of what they're pitching in order to satisfy what is deemed as demand. So it's going to be really interesting how this one boils out. So like, let's, again, kind of return to the question here. I want to know from your perspective, as I try to decline this call, um, given all of this talk about ETFs, is this why we're seeing a Bitcoin search? It's a really hard question, right? Like I'm not, I'm not trying to ask something simple here. I want to bat this around. Yeah. To me, it's... I'm actually going to steal a quote from someone for a video I made yesterday in that Bitcoin, the Bitcoin ETFs, whether they're futures or spot, whatever... They, I don't think they're the cause of the all-time high. I think they're an effect of the all-time high. Meaning that this level, this all-time high that we just saw in the last few days, the level it's at now, this has been a long time coming. I mean, since its inception, but a long time coming in 2021 alone. And I think that you know, because everyone, when we saw it for the first time, hit like, mid-60s, back in the spring of 2021, everyone's sort of freaking out. We saw it nosedive in price because that was a lot of people selling off thinking that had been the peak. And then we saw kind of different levels of uh, Bitcoin's value rising again. To me, that was always obviously, and we've talked about this a lot, either in live streams or on podcasts, is that was obviously large institutions uh, or individual whales. So people moving a lot of money just accumulating because they knew it was going to go back up. And to me, this is now they're creating ETFs as a way to further capitalize on their already sizable investment. Because at the end of the day, they're not actually giving away any of their Bitcoin. They're just taking people's money as they gamble and speculate on where it will go and if it's worth it to invest. And so long story short, I think... Bitcoin ETFs are happening because institutional investors saw this going to an all-time high. But keep, keep, keep riffing for a second. Yeah, I'm sorry. But I'd say beyond that, and I think this is something kind of 
interesting that we haven't really touched on yet. And I think Fidelity may be the most likely to get a spot ETF approved, mainly because they are a blue chip asset management slash investment company. This is a storied asset management firm. They don't mess up, right? Like they are clean in the press. They do what they do and they do it well. And I think that is a company that not just the SEC, but Wall Street and retail investors will want to see get involved. Because at the end of the day, names like Grayscale and ARK and even VanEck and Galaxy, right? They don't mean as much to the everyday person. You hear those names, you don't think of anything. They're newer, relatively funds. They have riskier investments. That's how a lot of them grew so quickly to now be in this position. Fidelity, though, is different. Fidelity has been around for more than 100 years, I believe. They are very good at what they do. And if they are getting involved, to me, that is, an, that is like green light go. We are at a Grand Prix, like the one in Austin this weekend. That means, okay, we have just gotten one of the largest asset management companies in world history to basically say, yeah, Bitcoin's obviously going somewhere. We're going to launch an ETF so that you, an investor, can get involved. And another aspect of this is Fidelity happens to manage a lot of Fortune 500 retirement plans. So your 401k. What this will allow people to do is, if Fidelity offers an ETF in Bitcoin, you can put part of your retirement savings within your company 401k plan into Bitcoin. And that's that awesome. is huge. That's so cool. And to me, like, and this is where I want to kind of wrap this thing up. And I appreciate you riffing there. I normally wouldn't take that call, but I had to deal with it. Um, the the big takeaway here is that ultimately, like, I don't really think this is why Bitcoin's at all time high right now. I just don't. I don't think that the Bitcoin futures impact is going to be the thing that actually drives us up. I think that the true thing that you're going to see happen later this year, and my current bet personally is that we are going to see two spot Bitcoin ETFs approved by end of the year. We're going to see Grayscale and we're going to see Fidelity. Basically, for the reasons that we've already discussed. Fidelity, the one thing that I don't know if you mentioned, they have the highest amount of assets under management of any financial brokerage. There's no reason that the SEC would not want to give that to them. Yeah, I, I, I don't know... I think I can leak this. I don't think this is actually confidential information, but they manage my 401k. They do the whole companies, right? So from one of the 100 most influential people in the world to a Austin, Texas located data analyst, they manage the company I work for is money. Yep. Right? They, like, they work with everyone. Every major company essentially says, okay, we need to set up 401ks or we could just give this to Fidelity to do because they've been doing it for decades. Yep. Well, look, I think that there's only one question to ask from here. And I want one word answer because we got to wrap this thing up. Where does Bitcoin go from here? Are we going Moon. up or are we going down? Moon. And I happen to agree with you. I think that by the end of the year, we're going to be on the moon. And I think that unlike past cycles, we are not going to see the type of correction that we would normally see. Bitcoin traditionally has about an 85 to 90% pullback at the end of the cycle when we enter the bear. I don't think that's happening. I don't think that's happening at all based on all the development we've had this year, all the massive institutional investment that's come in from players like MicroStrategy. There's no shot. Other institutions are going to end up snapping this up at probably a floor of like 25, if I'm guessing. I genuinely don't see it dropping below that. So... Does that mean that we get to 150 and that's ultimately like a 75% pullback? Maybe. But my personal opinion is we're going way up from here. Keep your eye out for some of these bigger whale wallets though, because they can do a lot of damage in this market and they can pull the rug right out from underneath you. So be smart, take profits, definitely take profits. We like to have that at the beginning of the video because it's so important. So look, before we go here, I want to make sure I've got our handles up on, on screen one more time. You can always find me after the show at Steve Miller underscore PHX on Twitter. You can find Chris over on Twitter as well at It's Mikus. You've also got our handles up at the top of the screen. Please come and make sure that you are following CryptoCurrent on all different social media platforms and otherwise checking out our articles over at www.com. 
crypto-current.co. Last announcements before we go um, are we have some really great episodes in um, the, the docket for this current week. You can check those out on our YouTube channel and on the podcast. Both have already released. And also next week, we've got Portal DeFi on the show. It's going to be a really great episode. Um, but last but not least, we've got some other things to watch for. What to watch for. This upcoming week between now and I believe the 27th, we have Harmony One who is launching a trustless Ethereum bridge on the 25th. That's really interesting to me because Harmony One is an up-and-coming um, Web3 ecosystem as well. Worth taking a look at. Icon Mainnet 2.0 launches on the 26th or is scheduled to launch on the 26th. I say that specifically because Icon has never delivered on anything on time. Ethereum is also going to be doing its first major step toward Ethereum 2.0 proof of stake. That is the Altair update or the Altair update, depending on what part of the nerdverse you are living in. That is supposed to be launching on the 27th. Chris, that is going to do it for us here at CryptoCurrent. We appreciate you being here. Make sure you like, subscribe, tell a friend, uh, tell your pets, tell your parents. We want to make sure that we are continuing to bridge that gap and making sure that everybody's getting educated about crypto. I've been Stephen Miller. He's been Chris Corneros. Do me a solid. Stay CryptoCurrent. We'll see you next week.